Well, hello and welcome to 2022 for the cricket fans. 2022. Um, Jez, Flynn's Talk, back for another season. Good to see you, mate. We certainly are. Here we are, talking through the wonderful telecommunications world via the Zoom link. Um, but we did actually record the bulk of this episode in person. We did. We certainly did. It was very exciting. For the first time for our 21st episode, we finally got to do it in person. 26th. 26th episode, that's right. This is episode number 26 and we finally got together and then the wheels fell off a little bit recently and we don't need to explain to everyone why that that's happened. But um, of course, Jez, it all started back in April. April 27 was our first episode we launched in 2020. So yep. coming up to the two-year uh, birthday party, which will be good. Yeah, yeah, it's very exciting. Exciting to know that people are actually still listening. Yeah, it's good. And, and hopefully even more people will be listening going forward. Um, we would be remiss of us to not mention Jez, our new podcast partner that's come yep. on board, Covetris. Yep, very exciting stuff. Um, so a big shout out to them uh, for coming on board and helping really to just push this podcast out to more people because mm. we've built a really nice following and, and been getting some really good listenership um, through the pod. But um, Covetris have supported us in a whole bunch of ways, um, even just with with friendship and support via sort of Maggie and yep. Andrew and the gang up in Brizzy who got on board. Um which connected us with Josh, and Josh has ultimately put together this partnership with us. Um, and if anyone was at the Melbourne Walk last year, Jez, I know you enjoyed a couple. I certainly did. I certainly did. The the blue the blue coffee cups, and so yep, um, it's sort of a continuation of our friendship we've we've built with Covetris now. And yeah, jump on. There's a bit of an article on our website that explains um, who they are and what they do, but. In a nutshell, they're really um, back-end and, and software infrastructure for vet clinics to, to create efficiency and effective workflow and all that kind of pharmaceutical inventory and billing patients and, and staff rostering and all that stuff that kind of just um, helps practices manage the admin side so they can put... Yeah, makes their life easier. They can focus putting more time into the energy of client relationships and, and caring for our pets. But uh, awesome to have them on board and a big thank you and and. You'll be hearing a little bit more about them as we go on through the series and we even hope to feature uh, some of the great people within their space um, through the show. Mm. Yep. So, Jez, um, yeah, episode episode 20, 26 today um, or in, in this one and uh, we're joined by Dr. Tiffany Howell. So, we, I've already put that uh, interview in the bank. Fascinating discussion, talking all things to do with dog cognition, dog behaviour, dog human relationships yeah it should be a really exciting uh really exciting chat with her um we we actually got to go through a lot of stuff that that we sort of moved down a few deep little rabbit holes mm. um, and got some exciting stuff out of her yeah well she spent a lot of time she originally from the states and, and she talks through her backstory but um she spent lots of time looking at how humans and dogs interact and what it actually all means at a scientific level about mm. why they make us feel good and how we make them feel good. It's somewhat yep. of a reciprocal relationship. And if anyone is dog mad, um, dog crazy parent, Jez like you with Nina, um, <laughs> you'll know that firsthand. And uh, it, it's interesting to hear it from that scientific and research perspective. Um, so I well, hope you enjoy the chat and uh, we'll throw over now and, and get into it. What do you reckon? Yep. Sounds good. Let's do it. Jez, I'm a... <laughs> we, we've found our way through in this series to some remarkable people and and the great thing has been how we've found people through people we've had on the show like, exactly yep because we because we've met amazing people yep. we keep meeting more people yeah it opens which, up more circles and this is a prime example of um, having dr tiffany howell on with us today tiffany welcome to our flynn's talk podcast thanks very much for having me and your pathway to now is um you know like well, many people's lives not particularly linear, I imagine. And I, I'd, I'd love for you to kind of um, take us back to where all this started. And, and we're going to get into your work and, and the specifics around human-animal connection and, and what's led now to an amazing program you've started, along with all the research that you've done. Take us back a little bit and, um, I guess, share with our listeners who's, who Tiffany is and, and what's made you who you are today. Okay, well... When I was four years old, I wanted to be a veterinarian <laughs> um, because that was the kind of work that I knew that you could do with animals. Um, but then uh, life, you know, it didn't work out that way. I was I was much better at sort of humanities and social sciences than the you know hard sciences and stuff. 
Um, I'm originally from the US. I have an American accent. I'm not faking it. It's real. <laughs> yes, detected. <laughs> uh, I did my, my undergraduate degree in North Carolina where I grew up and I studied French and international studies. Then I did a master's degree in England and I studied international politics. And then I worked for a few years back in the US and then ended up moving to Australia um, with my then partner, now husband, who got a position at Monash University. And during this time, this sort of massive change from moving from the US to Australia, I was also interested in doing a PhD, just as sort of an intellectual exercise, I just, just something I wanted to do for myself. Um, but I was interested in studying something to do with animals. So that whole, you know, the, the veterinarian side of me never really went away. Um, and so I wanted to study animal cognition, you know, so what makes, what makes animals tick? And so I found Pauline Bennett, who's a professor. She was working at Monash. Now she's at La Trobe University. She runs the Anthrozoology Research Group, which I joined. Um, she was willing to take me on, even though I have no background in this type of work. And um, so I did my PhD in dog cognition and behavior. And then since then, I've continued to work with Pauline as a research fellow and but the, but the work that we're doing has sort of moved from sort of raw, sort of um, theoretical law cognition type work to more applied research into assistance dogs, like, you know, sort of guide dogs and other dogs um, for, for people with uh, disability, um, animal-assisted therapy, and other elements of the human-animal relationship. So basically what makes, what makes a, a really strong human-animal relationship work? Um, and why does it sometimes, why does it not hold? Why does it fall apart? That's the kind of research that I do. When you dived into dog cognition, I imagine that was a short research project because it's pretty much just food and going for a walk. Is it maybe some lap time? Or... <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, being, I'm, I'm simplifying it a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty good. What, what dogs are excellent at um, is reading human communication cues. Yep. So, and this is something that was interesting to animal cognition researchers when it first was sort of established in probably the late 90s, early 2000s. It was really sort of um, surprised the, the research community because the animals that are closest to us in terms of, you know, sort of cognitive abilities, like, you know, great apes, chimpanzees, and um, they, they cannot do that. So if you mm. point at something, the, the chimpanzee will just look at your finger. It doesn't yep. understand that you're actually referring to something else. Whereas anybody with a dog knows that if you point at something on the floor, they will look at the floor. Yep. So, so they understand that you're actually referring to something else. Mm. So that's one of the sort of really interesting aspects of dog cognition, that there's something about the way that we've evolved together um, that enables us to communicate effectively in a way that we cannot do with other animals who are really, really, really intelligent. And so like, but we've seen um, and, and through history somewhat unethically at times, the way that animals have been trained or taught to do things and in the case of chimps and apes yeah. and, and, and a myriad of animals there's a difference there right we're talking about the fact that dogs are kind of got an almost an intuition and a connection with humans rather than and an ability to be taught stuff like right, right. from wrong and, and and time and place for particular activities but um that's i suppose important to delineate the fact that many animals can be taught but a dog that's actually right. can pick things up i guess yeah, intuitively yeah, that's right. Well, and, you know, they're kind of, they're, it's almost like, I don't know if we selected them intentionally for that sort of thing, or if just through the process of the natural and artificial selection um, that dogs went through from becoming, from starting off as wolves to becoming the dogs that, that they are now. Um, if that's just something that they sort of develop, because obviously if they're relying on humans for pretty much all of their resources, then they need to know what we're sort of thinking or feeling or, you know, they need to be able to react and respond in a way that is likely to, you know, make us feel happy with them and be, yep. you know, be willing to, to look after them. And yeah, stuff. it's for so, their benefit. 
That's right. Yeah. So it makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint as well. But you're right. Like it's, um, you know, there is a very big difference between a domesticated animal and an, and a wild animal that is in captivity um, or an, even a even a captive born um, wild animal. So, you know, a, a dolphin that was born in a um, in SeaWorld, for example, you know, it's 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 that doesn't mean that they're a pet. Um, they're not a domesticated animal. Um, there is definitely a difference there. Yeah, for sure. And um, we might have to do a whole other episode on cats because I'm pretty sure cats, <laughs> yeah. cats, cats are the complete opposite, aren't they? Yeah. Well, let's have a crack. I'll have a crack at what Cal, I reckon cats think. I know what you're thinking, human, and I know what you want, but I don't care. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. If I'm thinking yeah. about my cat, cats at the moment, yeah. another, I'm thinking they they know what you're thinking. They don't care. They'll do what they want anyway. Yeah, I, yeah. Cats are a funny one, aren't they? And and but we like that about them, right? So people mm, who have, some people. yeah, some people, yeah. Well, cat people tend to, um, you know, the people who have cats. We we actually did a study where we um, were developing a, a cat owner relationship scale. Um, we um, our our group. I wasn't involved with this, but several years back, our group developed a dog owner relationship scale. So a, a, a sort of survey to measure the quality of the relationship between dog and owner. And then we decided to do the same thing with cats. Um, and, and so we had conversations with cat owners about what it is about their cat that they like. And one of the things that kept coming up was that sort of independence and that, you know, I'm, I'm going to engage with you, but I'm going to do it on my own terms. And that's what makes them very different from dogs who are, who's, you know, for the most part are, are quite happy to engage with us all the time, whenever we want. Um, but cats are a bit more aloof and people really like that about them. So, so, you know, even from an evolutionary standpoint, maybe that's why cats are the way they are as well, you know, because the people who have cats, that's kind of what they want. <laughs> mm. Yeah, we sort of we sort of endorse it and, and encourage the particular behavior style. Like you don't get a cat and try to make it like a dog. That's um, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it's interesting that you get these different elements of a sort of a relationship from the different animals. So like cat, you might have a household with cats and dogs yes. and you're getting yeah. sort of both, both those sides of the relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that that's probably pretty common and yeah, probably people get, they get different things from the yeah. cats and the dogs and they probably feel differently towards it. You know, they, yep. they might love them equally, but in different ways for different reasons. And no word of a lie, in true cat fashion, um, my cat has just entered. Um, we've, we had the door shut, well, I thought we did, um, and she's just decided I'm going to come in. I don't really care if you're doing a podcast. Right. <laughs> so Jez yeah. has just ducked away to um, close the door. Thanks, Jez. Um, yeah. That's cats. Uh, so there's been, I mean, people, people have always been um, pet crazy, you know, crazy, crazy fur parents, crazy dog dads, crazy cat mums, whatever, whoever you are, you know, you know, who, you know who you are if um, <laughs> one of these things is resonating with you. But through, through the COVID time, you know, which is now being earmarked as an era, apparently it's, it's got right. that wrong. Okay. Um, there was somewhat of a, a pandemic pet boom, but there were already a heck of a lot of pets in Australia, some, some sort of 28 million. It's now over 30 million um, predicted domestic pets in Australia, six, six million or thereabouts um, are dogs. So I'm interested in, in going down this dog path, which is obviously why we were keen to talk to you, but what is it and how did we get to having six million pet dogs in, in Australia and, and, you know, well over two thirds of households having, having a pet? What is that that actually binds people to their pet? Like Tiffany, you and I were talking um, before the show about that they're cute and fluffy yes tick um there's there's some routine tick but like what else is there that really binds us uh to our pets and that need to have them around yeah that's a really good question and there there's no sort of single answer um but there are a few different possibilities one is the whole cute and cuddly thing so um, there is a theory that basically animals, pets, are because they are so cute, they kind of hijack our <laughs> our um, in our sort of instinct to care for cute things. So you know, babies are cute, and because babies are cute, we we love them and we look after them. And so there is this theory that basically pets 
hijack that instinct and sort of manipulate it to their own advantage. <laughs> so that is um, that is not outside the realm of possibilities because they are very cute. And, you know, we respond very similar similarly to a cute animal as we do to a cute baby. Um, so that is a possibility, but I don't think that that fully explains it. Um, there's also a theory that people have pets because they can't have normal human relationships. And there may be an element of that in some cases, but that does not explain why something like 69% of Australian households have a dog. We're not that socially defunct as a society, you know, that, that we can't have normal human relationships. So, so um, I think that probably the, the two theories that sort of sit most comfortably for me are theories about oxytocin and theories about positive psychology. So I'll take each of those in turn. Oxytocin is uh, is known as the cuddle hormone. So it's a it's a neurochemical that's released when we do things like um, hug a person that we love. Um, when we're caring for a new baby, we get a sort of massive flow of oxytocin. So basically, it sort of encourages us to develop bonds and to feel closely uh, to, to somebody else. And there has been research looking at our oxytocin levels when we spend time with, with our pets. And what they found is that even a really brief session of, of cuddling or petting a, a one of our pets releases this oxytocin hormone in our bodies. So it's, so there's neurochemical changes that happen when we're having an enjoyable interaction with our pets. And, and the interesting thing to me about, about that research is that they also measured oxytocin levels in the animals and their oxytocin levels went up as well. Oh. So it is a mutual, so, oh, wow. so they really do love us. It's true. It's been scientifically confirmed. Right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, so I think that that's part of it. You know, it releases a, a neurochemical that we like. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel comfortable, happy, and content. Um, so that's probably part of it. And the, and the positive psychology thing is another part of it. So positive psychology is an entire field of psychology that focuses effectively on what makes people happy. So traditional clinical psychology is like, okay, how do we take somebody who's got a mental health issue and get them back to a baseline? Um, but positive psychology says, okay, but baseline, maybe that's not enough. Like there are people who are well beyond baseline who are doing really well, really happy. So what is that? Right. And so they've been doing all this research looking at what 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 is happiness you know, from a scientific standpoint. And there are a few different aspects of people's lives that are necessary to create sort of an overall satisfaction with life. Um, but three of those are social support, pleasure and meaning. So by social support, I mean, you have somebody, even just one person that you can call at four o'clock in the morning when you need them. Right. So if you have one person um, or in this case, it could be one animal. Um, so if you can rely on your pet to, you know, to listen to you, to be there for you, to you know, sort of help you um, through tough times, that's really important for happiness. Pleasure is things like just enjoyment. So, so things that bring joy. So eating an amazing piece of you know, cake or whatever your favorite food is or, um, you know, sort of playing your favorite sport or participating in your favorite hobby. Pets can also bring us pleasure. So interacting with them, it's, it's fun, you know, and they can be funny. They do funny things like your cat who just insists on coming in and out of the room. That's funny, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, she'll be at the door. I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> That's how she rolls. Um, but, you know, but those sorts of experiences, even though they can drive us nuts sometimes, but on the other hand, they, they make us laugh. You know, they're funny. Um, and then meaning is when you have a sense of purpose in your life. So there's something, and it can be from your work, it can be from raising children, it can be from activities that you participate in your community, it can be from running Flynn's Walk, something that makes you feel like what you're doing actually serves a purpose and has a greater meaning than just yourself. And looking after pets can give us that sense of meaning because if we if we do it well, it's hard work, right? You know, you, it's not just a matter of leaving food in the bowl and then you know let them um, go outside to to 
potty every few hours. Like you need to, you need to really engage with them. You need to interact with them with cats. It might be something as simple as just hanging out on the sofa and, you know, sort of playing a game with them um, every now and then with dogs, you know, they, they require regular walks and, um, and sort of other sort of mental stimulation and enrichment. So, so doing those things well is, is, it does take a commitment and that can give people a sense of meaning. So I think all of those things together, um, probably play a role. And, and I think that they can explain beyond just the fact that they're cute and cuddly, why we can develop these really close bonds with animals. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it like, it's also interesting. I mean, I know I've had, I've got a four year old pup and I know I've had plenty of conversations with her at the end of the day that she doesn't know what I'm t- like. She probably knows a bit about what I'm talking about, but she can read the emotion <laughs> and she sort of, right. like if I've had a hard day at work, she just sort of sits there and listens to me and give me a, give me a bit of a lick on the cheek or something yeah, after I've spoken right. to her. And it's, it's those, it's those conversations that you sort of, it's, it's a bit like a debrief. You may not want to chat to another person and be judged mm. and, and actually, have, right. a, yeah. Yeah, actually yeah. have a back and forward conversation. You just want to sort of let your emotions out and, and honestly, it's sometimes the dog's the perfect thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and making that sort of making that jump from just your family pet to actually having an assistance dog or or a therapy dog or something like that is there. Like I know there's a lot of training for for seeing eye dogs and sniffer dogs and things like that. Is that a is that a big leap from your family pet to someone to, to a dog that's actually working? Yes, it is a huge leap. Um, most pet animals do not require anything near the level of training that you would need for, for a working dog. Um, you mentioned assistance dogs and therapy dogs. And I think one thing I would like to do is talk about the definitions of those two animals, because there's a lot of confusion about what an assistance dog is and what a therapy dog is. And a lot of people, you know, people in the community, uh, pet owners, assistance dog owners and the people in research and industry. Everyone's confused about this. And I'm actually in the process now of working with some collaborators to try to get, you know, sort of firm all this up for the research community. Um, so at least there can be some consistency. But but generally, um, there, for an assistance animal, there is a legal definition for, of assistance animal. It's in the Disability Discrimination Act, which is a federal law. And it is an animal that is usually a dog, but it could be any other animal, um, that is highly trained for, uh, for behavior, for you know, appropriate behavior and hygiene that makes the, the animal suitable for public access so that the animal can access public spaces that are off limits to pet dogs, and is highly trained to uh, help a person with a disability to mitigate the effects of that disability. So by definition, an assistance dog owner must have a disability, right? Um, so they have to be, because that because part of the role of an assistance dog is to provide disability support. And the reason why they have public access rights that most animals don't have is because they're considered a necessary support for that person. So, you know, a person with a guide dog for vision impairment, they don't stop being blind when they go out to the cafe, right? So they need the dog with them to help them navigate through that whole experience. So, um, and guide dogs are sort of the classic example, but then there are also, you know, there are assistance dogs for people with post-traumatic stress disorder, for other psychiatric disabilities, they're for autism, um, intellectual and developmental disabilities, epilepsy, diabetes, just the list goes on. It's growing. It's, it's um, pretty, you know, watching it sort of evolve, I suppose, watching the working roles evolve from where I'm sitting is really sort of phenomenal, like how fast it's growing and how many roles these dogs can be applied into. um, So that's an assistance dog. A therapy animal, a therapy dog, is an animal that is part of a goal-directed and structured therapy program that is run by a qualified professional. 
So it might be um, somebody, a counselor, who has a therapy dog working with them. And when the clients come in to receive the counseling, the dog might be there to, you know, provide some comfort or to help to um, be into or to, you know, help facilitate, you know, sort of conversations with the counselor. So it's almost so the animal is not the therapist. Um, but the animal is part of that sort of therapeutic interaction with uh, with a, with a client, but not just not just for mental health. It can also be for physical health. So OTs, occupational therapists, um, often um, can do animal assisted therapy to improve things like posture and gait and things like that. And is that part like you were saying before about that sort of release of oxytocin and and making the person feel good? Is that is that sort of part of it? That is that 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 therapy part of it? Yeah, nobody knows. So, yeah, the short answer is we don't know, but we do know that um, the research base is positive. So it's there are a lot of limitations like it's, uh, you know, I can't be the one to stand here and say that, yes, animal assisted therapy definitely works. Um, But but the but the evidence that does exist, even though there are limitations, you know, small um, sample sizes and things like that. Generally, it is it's showing positive results. And one of the one of the things that seems to be making a difference is that people keep turning up. So instead of just dropping out of therapy, they're more likely to stick it out to the end. And surely that, you know, if nothing else, then that must have some sort of you know beneficial impact. Right. Yeah. Well, I was going to that's exactly what I was going to say. Like uh, you sometimes, I suppose, and, and you need to look for that scientific in, reinforcement or, or evidence to say, Yep, actually, because the dog was in the room, they made step change or progress in this way. But maybe maybe it's slightly coincidental and that's cool too. It's just like, you know what? If that dog being there helps this get done um, or helps this person yes. move forward with, with where they're going, can't argue with that. Yeah. Like it, it, it's kind of, there's that's a bit right. of feel in it, I suppose. And it's like you were saying, Nina, there could be a job for Nina going forward, mate, <laughs> if she um, wants to go to university. But there's that... Um, you're, you've just talked about it yeah, before yeah, about yeah. in informally in your own home that's a comfort seek mm. and obviously there's a relationship and, and stuff there that you know and it's a comfort for you oh it's the same with my 15 year old cat who, who passed away last year and i've talked about it on the show who, who when i sort of summarized it all up i was like well she was kind of a companion and a confident and, and, a, and a whole lot of things but um yeah. yeah it's a pretty cool thing to think that yeah there's some science there absolutely but if it's just feel as well and for that particular person that's working awesome similarly because we were talking about this tiffany as well weren't we it doesn't always work in terms of having an, right. a, a therapy animal involved right and so yeah to kind of just flip the conversation a little bit take us through the fact that you know it's not always a one-size-fits-all approach is it and that navigating this space there'll be different there'll be differing results for different people yeah. Well, yeah. And so for the assistance animals, I think one of the real consider, like a major consideration has to be whether the, the person or the, the family, like the whole support network around the person is able to, to look after a dog. Um, because these dogs are living sentient beings. They're very, um, they're very sensitive and they have, they have needs that, that have to be met. And so if a particular person for whatever reason is just not able to, to commit to looking after a dog, um, the way that, you know, the dog needs, then an assistance dog is not going to be for them. Um, and, and that's, that's really unfortunate when that happens, but, you know, we can't let the potential benefits for the person outweigh the welfare needs of the animal. They have to be the same. They have to be given the same consideration. Um, For animal-assisted therapy, now for some people who would really like to be able to have an assistance dog but cannot for that reason, they might benefit from animal-assisted therapy, right? So because then they can still have those sorts of therapeutic engagements and interactions with an animal, but they are not the ones who are responsible for meeting the animal's welfare needs. That falls on the um, the, the qualified health professional in most cases, or you know, the um, in, in other cases there might be a handler who's sort of involved, um, who's looking after the dog. But 
but you know, so a, so animal assisted therapy might help people might be helpful for people who cannot have their own assistance animal. Um, but even within the context of animal assisted therapy, some people don't like animals. Some people are allergic to animals. Some people for religious or cultural reasons, they just don't have that sort of affinity towards animals. So, um, you want to make sure that, you know, if you're interested in doing animal assisted therapy, um, don't just assume that everyone loves animals as much as you do. <laughs> there needs to be some screening and, you know, if, and, you know, and maybe some people love them too much, you know, they find it uh, almost a distraction. So, you know, that then it has a negative impact on sort of therapeutic outcomes because they can't focus because they're too distracted by the animals. So, so there has to be sort of the happy medium there of people who, first of all, want to be with animals and enjoy interactions with animals, but don't find them so distracting that they can't even, um, you know, do the work that's required. And so talking about like the pandemic in the last couple of years and everyone's social connection or, or lack thereof social connection and the, and the sort of connection that the animals bring with the people, but also with others. I know when I go out for a walk, like if I go out for a walk by myself around the corner, no one's going to talk to me. But if I go, if I go around the block with my, with my little dog, who, even though she's four, she still looks like, she still looks like she's a puppy. I'll probably have half a dozen people stop me. There may be people with dogs and maybe people without dogs. Is that, is that an element of it as well? That sort of the social connection with the animal, but also with people from the outside world that some people with these with these disabilities or with these impairments may not be getting? Yeah, look, that is that is a really um, an important part of it. But it's not just people with disability who who experience this. So, of course, if you go out with a with an assistance dog, one of the sort of pros and cons at the same time of, of having an assistance dog is that you get more attention. Um, and sometimes that can be wanted attention. And sometimes you're just trying to go to the supermarket to get the milk and you just want to get back home, you know? So, um, so you definitely do get more attention, um, based on the, the existing research, if you have an assistance dog, but that's true of pet dogs as well, or, you know, pet animals generally, like you said, when you go out with your puppy, it's a completely different experience socially <laughs> when you go out by yourself. And, um, and that's one of the, that's one of the other benefits of, of having a pet. So I mentioned before about the positive psychology and the, that the animals can be a sort of social support for us, but they can also be a social facilitator. So they, the, the presence of an animal with you encourages people to talk to you um, because first of all, they, they figure you're a nice person. Um, and because, you know, the dog likes you, so you must be okay. Right. Um, but also it gives you, it gives an icebreaker, right? So it's very easy to approach somebody with an animal because you just talk about the animal, you know, you, and you don't have to like, be like, Oh, so what do you do? And what's your name? And, you know, sort of the awkward, um, conversations that you have when you're first getting to know somebody. So, um, so that's another sort of real benefit of having a, a pet, but even so, and that's especially true for dogs, right? So, because we, we take dogs for a walk, we have, we have to, um, that that's part of the, that's part of the deal when you get a dog, but with cats, you know, cats generally speaking, aren't leash walked, although that is starting to change. I have noticed. There's one near me that uh, goes around in a backpack. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I've seen, yeah. I've seen a couple in backpacks and I've seen a couple on leash, um, and their owners were desperately trying to teach them to walk and be in true cat fashion. They were like, no, I just want to sit here on the grass. Yep. <laughs> um, <Sounds right. laughs> that would definitely get attention from the, from the community. But, um, but even for people whose cats are, are indoor cats or, you know, they don't get, um, they don't have those sorts of, you know, leash walks with their cats. You know, you can you can meet other cat lovers. You know, you can join groups online and you know, cat lovers, and um, and so you can meet people that way. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a face to face interaction while the animal is present, but just the fact that you love an animal and you have a relationship with an animal um, can can sort of inspire you to seek out other like minded people. Just one little question on that as well. I know with with seeing eye dogs and guide dogs that you're not meant to interact with the dog. Yes. Is that the same thing for for assistance? for therapy dogs or assistance dogs? So for any assistance dog, um, no matter what the person's disability is, whether yep. it's, you know, guide dogs or psychiatric assistance dog yep. or autism assistance dog, you should not be approaching that animal. <laughs> yep. um, 
even if you even if you regularly donate to one of the, the organizations that trains these animals, you know, you still don't do it. Um, one of the biggest complaints that I've been reading about in existing research and in conversations that I've had with people who have an assistance dog is that sort of, you know, people running up and, you know, sort of wanting to pet the dog. And um, I, I understand the impulse because they are beautiful animals yeah. and they're so well behaved, you know, and they just look so friendly. Um, but just ask, you know, ask the yeah. owner um, instead of just rushing up and, and starting to, to interact with the dog to say, you know what, you have a beautiful dog. Is it okay if I say hi? And, and be okay with it if the person says no, because those dogs are doing very important work. And sometimes the, the, it's really important that they not be distracted. Um, so, and so there will be situations when a person is out with their assistance dog and it will be okay if the dog is a little bit distracted, you know, they're doing something that's fairly safe and, you know, they're not at risk. Um, but then there will be other circumstances wherein it's just not appropriate at all. And it's important to just accept that. It's particularly hard when the guide dogs have their <laughs> L plate like bib thing yeah. on yeah. And you're like oh i know that it, mm. i know that the dog is learning and it's got an l plate like a driver and you're like yeah really want to pat it um it, uh, something actually yeah. that uh, this is probably just you know i feel i feel lucky to have had an experience like this but our, our next door neighbors growing up actually um did the guide dog program um and, yeah, okay. and, and so from a young age and i've, I've a, a much younger brother um and both of us sort of yeah. got that experience of seeing actually what it was like and the, the the fun thing was them being our neighbors was we got to see the dog without the bib on and we did get that interaction and the play right. the socialization yes. stuff which yeah. was fun but um i think i think they had two or three of them over a number of years and only only one 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 graduated i think but um for yeah. them uh they ended up just saying we need to get our own dog now um so right you know yeah but the outplates are a little bit different because socialization is an important part of their training it's still really important to ask the person who's you know the puppy raiser the person who's handling the dog if it's okay to interact with the dog because they might be right in the middle of a training session and you know or you know the they're learning that the dog is learning how to walk in a particular way or something um but in in some cases it will be appropriate to interact with the with the dog because they need that sort of socialization as puppies so but just ask that that's the only rule <laughs> yeah no, it's a good it's a good tip and if you're seeing if you're seeing them out there i mean it just yeah think about the fact that um they're actually working like they've, they've got a job to do that's really super important for the person um that they're doing that job for so just keep that in mind. Um, there's plenty of other dogs, I'm sure, at the dog park and, and my family and I know like many of our friends, Jez, as well, but um, my nan probably makes a new friend every week uh, out walking her dogs. Yep. Oh, I'm yeah, just popping yeah. out around right. the block. She'll be gone for two hours because she's just, and she's, yeah. and she's gone six houses um, yeah. talking to her dog owners. So she's a shocker. Well, we also know like in our in sort of our street block, yeah. we don't know. We don't really know anyone who lives there, but we know all the dogs and all the pets along right. along yeah. our little walking Yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah. typical, isn't it? You oh, know the name it. of the dogs, but you don't know the, the yeah. And so the you know, so the house down the road becomes like you know Fido's house or Scooter's house and stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah Max's right. house. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Um, yeah. No, we love it. It's great. Uh, and, and and of course, also, it's good when you do see people out walking their dogs and we know about that welfare right. thing as well. So, um, you know, there's lots of, lots of tips here for those. And we know that the people listening to the podcast are all lovely fur parents. Um, so, this, this has been obviously, so, there's so much work and you've got so much knowledge and research and findings behind um, your, your pathway. It's been so good to chat. You've kind of somewhat converge this now into into um, the animal assisted therapy for health professionals course talk us through that and how you've arrived at that and and vanessa rolf who um is a, is a friend of flynn's walk as well led us to you and, and is involved in the course so tell us a little bit about that and what's involved with it and how people can get involved if, if they're if they want to like you said vanessa and i are involved in an animal assisted therapy short course it's run at Trobe university um pauline bennett who is my phd supervisor and now my mentor um, she's also involved and it kind of came out of just a general lack of of other options, you know, there, so there are, um, institutes and providers who do training for people who are interested in animal assisted therapy, um, but there's nothing at a university. 
And we, you know, this is something that we've been talking about for years. And then finally we just said, you know what, let's just do it. Like, you know, it's, it's time. Um, and so we did, we developed this course. It's a 10 week course. And because none of us are actually animal assisted therapists, <laughs> we instead have invited, um, sort of experienced academics and practitioners to come and give guest lectures where they talk about, uh, you know, how they do what they do, why they do what they do, why they think it might be working. Um, and we cover everything from sort of the evidence base for animal assisted therapy and sort of the oxytocin and, and positive psych stuff that I was mentioning before um, through to animal welfare theoretically, but also in practice. So what are some of the sort of overarching um, frameworks for animal welfare? But then also, you know, how do you make sure that your animal is experiencing good welfare? What are some of the signs that you would be looking for? Um, and then specific, you know, things that can be done within a therapeutic setting to benefit um, various populations. So some, you know, there's one on, you know, people with mobility disorders, one on mental health conditions, um, one on developmental and intellectual disabilities and, and disorders. So, um, so we have people who come in and, and they sort of explain their experience. And, and most of them, because there is so little out there in terms of the way of formal training and certification, they learned on the ground. Um, and now they know what they're doing. And so they're willing to very kindly share that information with the, with the students in the course. There is a limit. Um, so that we cap the, the student numbers at 35 because we want it to be like a classroom feel. And we want um, we, these lectures that we have are live. They're on Zoom, but they do happen live. And so the students um, can come in and they can have engagements and interactions with the lecturers and ask the questions that they want to ask. And, you know, so we thought that having 35 students um, in, enrolled would make everyone feel more comfortable doing that than if we had 150 or, or more people enrolled. So, um, so that's why we keep it quite small. Um, but it, it really has enabled the students, I think, to develop a sort of sense of community around this work. And, um, and the, you know, hopefully they feel a little bit less alone um, than they might have otherwise just trying to do it on their own. Because one of the things, one of the key points is that it's not easy. It's not as simple as, oh, I have a lovely pet cat. I think I'll bring her to work with me. <laughs> There's a lot more involved than that. Um, so that's really what the course is all about. And it is for healthcare professionals, and that includes medical professionals, but also allied health um, and sort of anybody who's interested in providing a service, a sort of therapeutic service where they incorporate an animal. And also probably slightly off topic as well, but most a lot of our listeners are vets or, or in the vet profession. Has there been any research into animal-assisted therapy for animals, like having a, having a therapy dog in a vet practice for nervous animals that come in? I know about the horses that take a horse mate or sometimes a pony to the racetrack yeah. to, for like performance anxiety and stuff, but I think that's a bit looser and not as yeah. formal in the, it's more of like, Oh, the pony keeps getting in the float. So we can't help it. Like it's coming right. to the race course. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good question. I have not heard of any research of that kind. Mm. Doesn't mean that it's not out there. Yeah. Um, from a vet practice, it would probably depend on the, the sort of the client animal, the patients, um, reaction or sort of, you know, friendliness toward other animals. So, and you'd also want to be careful. So if you have a, and uh, you know, if, if your therapy animal is a cat, then, you know, some dogs are a little bit predatory towards cats. So you want to want to keep them safe. So um, I can see some potential challenges there, but you know, some, some animals I think do probably benefit from, from the presence of another relaxed animal so you know in some cases it might help that's a really good question i'm going to google that after we get off this <laughs> yeah i mean it, it sort of came to me because my my dog can be quite reactive and i know when she's with my dad's dog who's also a bit reactive they sort of both play off each other and will chase another small fluffy dog down the street but when she's with a friend's dog who's really calm and and controlled and friendly with everything she actually sort of mimics that and and takes on a lot of those qualities. Yeah, that's a that is a, that's an interesting point. So if an animal, you know, therapy animal should be quite calm by nature and also interested in meeting 
unfamiliar, you know, sort of people. Um, so if you extend that to animals, yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, well, when you do your dissertation on it, you can name me. <laughs> That's right. Um, my next PhD, I'll study that. Yeah. Well, we'll turn, yeah. We'll turn the, the podcast into a research project already. Yeah, I, yeah, I, do know, I do know having popped in and out of um, many different clinics, vet clinics, um, both for taking my pet or just catching up with, with friends of our, our mission, um, there's often a clinic cat. Yep, that is um, true. Which serves a whole a lot of different purposes, and in some cases, is actually like um, a blood donor um, mm. when they needed to right, be. Okay. And certainly, a lot of vets uh, take their dog to work. Um, right. Just last week, was at Port Phillip Animal Hospital, and and there were dogs coming in and out on, on leashes, not on. Le- I'm like, what's going on here? And it turns out the clinic owner has two or three dogs of his own, just sort of wandering right. about. <laughs> just and that out, even yeah. itself, I think. Um, going in there quells a bit of the anxiety potentially or, or nerves around going in to help your, you know, you're getting your pet assessed or getting some treatment. Oh, there's, yeah. there's the, the clinic dog, you know, there's Bruno or Bruce yeah. or whatever its name is. And even that again, like I think there's a really obvious theme here about, yeah, just dogs being enablers for social interaction, right? And icebreakers, yeah. great icebreakers. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, even even bringing someone to your house and they go, oh, there's the cat, there's the dog. Even Jez walked in this morning and mm-hmm. saw, saw, the, saw the cats timidly looking at him from the corner of the lounge room, but <laughs> assessing, um, assessing whether he was a predator. I'm interested um, and like uh, just sort of pr- probably somewhat lastly, from your perspective on a personal level, what's been kind of something that has just, you've just really enjoyed or a favourite a favorite uh, piece of, you know, research that you, that you've um, published or, you know, or similar to that? Gosh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, the one thing, this, this may or may not be my favorite once I get to a chance to truly reflect on it. But one thing, the one thing that jumps out at me was we did a study. It was an honor student project looking at cuteness in dogs and whether cuteness has an influence on the, the pet owner relationship. So that thing that I had said earlier about, you know, that pets could be social parasites, that they just sort of hijack our sort of cuteness response instinct. So we thought, well, let's let's measure that. And um, and what we found, we asked people to rate their their own dog's cuteness and also to describe a bunch of personality traits and the and the quality of their relationship. And then we thought, what you know, people like what an owner thinks is cute might be different from what you know, whether the dog's actually cute. So we wanted an objective measure of cuteness as well. So for about 40 of the dogs, we got them to send it, we got the owners to send in a photo. And then we asked strangers to rate the cuteness of the, of the dog. Um, and then also a bunch of personality traits about, you know, whether <clears throat> what they thought the dog's personality would be like based solely on the photo. And what we found was that, um, Owners almost universally think that their dog is cuter than everybody else thinks, <laughs> which I suppose shouldn't be much of a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's good to confirm that you think so. Yeah, that's right. that's right. Now we have evidence. Um, but also, like, there, was, there were relationships between um, the relationship quality and the cuteness of the owner. So people with uh, stronger relationships do perceive their pets as cuter. And, um, and there were certain personality traits among the stranger raters, so the people who don't know the dog who were just looking at the photo. There were some personality traits that were also related with the, um, with the cuteness, but I can't remember what they are off the top of my head. Um, maybe something like friendliness or, you know, something along those lines. So, um, but that was, a, that was a really fun, fun study. Um, I imagine like the first question is, do you think your dog is the cutest? There's two checkboxes. One is yes, yes. the other is get out of my house. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because right, there's yeah. only one answer, right? Yeah. I mean, you could probably do it for cats as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, what kind of stupid stuff. question is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, make a remark below. Yeah. Additional comments. Kind yeah. Of thing. yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, um, uh, we know and, and, and through through our own uh, life experience of having uh, domestic pets um, growing up and, and into adulthood and, and then, you know, now the choice of like, I don't have a dog and I'm like, the choice in the world is in front of me. The process of having pets in our lives, we certainly love it and have ex- enjoyed exploring it. And um, it sounds like you have as well. So thank you for sharing your insights with us um, on the show and all the best with with the AAT course going forward, and um, we'll let people know um, what that looks like going into twenty twenty two as well, and and how they can get involved. Um, 
And uh, but yeah, thank you, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to to chat with you guys. Had a lot of fun. Likewise, thank you. Well, Jez, a very insightful uh, and enjoyable chat. A, a good one to kind of get us going again for the yeah. new season and, and the new year. And I mean, Certainly. talking about fur, fur babies and dogs in particular. <laughs> I mean, we probably could have kept going for uh, for a lot longer there. Yeah, well, they're always good these these chats. Sometimes we have ones that are really aimed at just veterinary professionals, and some that are more the general public. And it's nice to have these ones where sort of hopefully it appeals to most of our wider audience. Everything, everyone will get. To, something out of this one and really interesting stuff from from Tiffany that yeah I hadn't really thought about with my own animals even yeah even the um the physiological response of the oxytocin release and how dogs experience that as well like that is incredible research I mean mm. you kind of feel like on a feel sense that they love you and you love them but there's science that is yeah to actually see the science behind it very cool Tiffany talked about of course um the animal-assisted therapy work, Jez, and that she's culminated that into a yep. course. So yep. um, the latest word on that is that the next round of that course is starting on the 7th of March and it'll run through to the 20th of May. There's still, at the time we've recorded this and released, there's still some spots available. Uh, the deadline is Sunday the 20th of February um, at uh, 5 to midnight if you want to register interest to do that. Um and by all means, the link we'll post the link in in the blurb of the show um, through the podcast channel and on our on our pages. But uh, you can jump on, and if it is too late to get a spot in this um, next intake, you can register an expression of interest. Uh, they'll be running it again later in the year. But jump on, have a look. Really incredible um, guest lecturers involved, and they ran the course late last year, and a lot of the same lecturers are coming back, including Vanessa Rolf, who has become a friend of Flynn's Walk and yep, Talk. Exactly. And she'll be coming up on the podcast uh, soon too. So jump on and have a look at that and all the details are there. Of course, it's run through Latrobe Uni um, and it does count as CPD uh, for those who are interested in terms of not just the gain of knowledge, but the gain of some credit through that as well. Perfect. Jez, we usually uh, finish up and just by uh, giving out some of the key contact points, websites and phone numbers for the mental health services that are available yep, out there. Of course, we always do so. There's always Beyond Blue, Kids Helpline, Headspace, Are You Okay, which both have phone lines, both have internet, that you, um, internet websites that you can look up some information, as well as Lifeline, which is 131114 if, if it is a crisis or you do need urgent help. And also they've just announced that they're going to be doing their 24-7 text line as well, which I don't have the number in front of me. Yeah, that's 0477. 13, 11, 14. So it's the same as the Lifeline number, just with the mobile 0477 13, 11, 14. Ah, perfect. And Jez, it's the text and also the online chat. Yeah, exactly right. So yeah, there's there's both options there. So if you don't want to use the phone, then there's always other options as well. Yeah, and, and, and the research and data is there to support that. And it's awesome to see that they receive that grant um, through some federal funding yeah. to push that to the next level, uh, which is awesome. Exactly. Jez, thanks as always and uh, looking forward to just continuing to open up these conversations across the veterinary sector, the mental health space. Um, there's some really cool and interesting and different guests and we say that all the time, but we keep finding new <laughs> avenues we do. To, to open up the yeah. conversations. So um, hopefully you... Yeah, there's actually some really interesting people coming up. Should be a good season. Thank you, mate, as always, and we will talk very soon. Pleasure. Pleasure.